Uncovering the Bronze Age, Episode 2. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Uncovering the Bronze Age. I'm your host, Emily, and today we take a look at the thrilling noir world of the world's greatest detective. This time we'll be looking at two, count them, two issues that feature the one and only Batman. As with the last episode, and probably for most of the episodes to come, I'm reading from a trade, not a single issue. Many of the single issues from the Bronze Age are difficult to find if you're cheap like me, since they're old enough to be rare and in high enough demand to avoid the quarterbin graveyard. These stories are collected in Batman, Tales of the Demon, so any hardcore Bat fans already have a clue as to why I picked these. The first issue we'll be looking at is Into the Den of the Death Dealers, from Detective Comics 411. Cover dated May 1971. Stories by our friend Denny O'Neill. Art by Bob Brown and Dick Giordano, with colors by Tom Ziuka. The first page splash depicts Batman landing atop the Statue of Freedom copyright on a dark and stormy night. The narration sets the noir tone of the book, with its dramatic descriptions of the inky fog, flickering lights of the city, and the stoic figure waiting like a bird of prey. The next page reveals that Batman is waiting to meet with an informant inside the statue's torch. A low-level member of the League of Assassins has contacted Gordon and asked to meet with the Batman. He wants protection in exchange for information about the League, and in particular, one Dr. Dark. Really? Dr. Double R. Dark? If I could afford the royalty payments, I'd drop in Linkara's poor literacy gag here. But either way, I'm a little surprised to learn that the 90s didn't actually invent the terribly misspelled names trope. The informant pleads with Batman, as we see two more dark-cloaked figures scaling the statue. The informant begins to lay out his terms, but before he can finish his sentence, he lurches backwards towards the window. The assassin behind him shelves the limp body away and withdraws a wicked-looking meat hook from the man's back, crying, Death to our foes! Death to all foes of the League! Including the Batman! He hurls himself through the window towards our hero, but with a survival instinct honed on a thousand mortal combats, Batman catches the attacker and tosses him aside. Springing to his feet a second later, he whirls to face the second assailant, who menaces him with a knife. However, Batman's quick thinking and martial proficiency are only matched by his courage, and he disarms the assassin, throwing him against the wall in one fell swoop. The two flee, knowing they are no match for this man. Batman does not pursue, however, noting that they scattered bits of metal behind them as they ran. His perception is rewarded. They are Tetsubishi, commonly known to D&D players as Caltrops. The six-pointed tacks would have pierced Batman's boot and crippled him in a single step. The informant, just barely clinging to life, calls out to Batman, who reassures him that he'll be taken to a hospital right away. However, the man dissuades Batman. The League poisons all of their weapons, and he knows he has only seconds to live. He delivers the information with his dying breath. Dark will be on the Zoom Express the following Tuesday, and if Batman hurries, he can intercept him there. Batman raises a fist to the sky in frustration. Dark and his assassins have claimed another life, but he swears that this will be the last. We cut to a week later on the waiting platform to the Zoom Express in scenic Thailand, oldest, creakiest passenger service in the world. Dr. Dark boards the train in the company of a lovely young lady, stepping aside to assist an old Asian woman onto the express. As the train zooms towards the imposing mountain ranges of Janaristan, Dark and his companion begin to make their way toward the rear exit. As the train slows and begins its ascent, the couple make their departure. 
The old woman has followed their progress and now leaps from the back of the train, ripping off the mask and cloak in one fell swoop to reveal the Batman. For indeed, this is the era where removing a mask has the ability to change one's entire outfit, not to mention height and body type. Now, I will give this sequence its due credit. It is exceptionally well-paced. The old woman is prominent in the previous panels, but not obsequious, so the reveal isn't cheap or obvious. Further, the sequence heralds back to the masterful disguises of Sherlock Holmes and underlines the defining feature of Batman's character during this time, the world's greatest detective. However, unlike the estimable Mr. Holmes, Batman has bat ears, and even if he stole a mask from the Legion of Superheroes, it really pushed my suspension of disbelief to think that Batman's entire costume, cowl, cloak, gloves, boots and all, could be that easily concealed by a costume that is removed in a jump cut. However, realism isn't the goal. The goal was to make me go, holy shit, Batman was the old lady the whole time? That's awesome! And as for that goal, I will say, mission accomplished. Dark is shockingly less shocked by this revelation than I was, smarmily congratulating Batman on the quality of his disguise. Batman tells him to save his compliments, but Dark continues, sneering that he can afford to be generous, since he planned for Batman's possible arrival, and he will not have much time left among the living. Batman realizes he's surrounded by assassins wielding bamboo poles. Dark eggs them on as they attack Batman, and though he resists for minutes, striking back at every opportunity, Batman is eventually overpowered and beaten savagely. Dark's lady friend asks if they will kill Batman, but Dark reassures her. Such is their ability that they need kill only when commanded to, and I choose to permit him to live. Once Batman relinquishes himself to oblivion, the assassins lift him up, and on the orders of Dark, they proceed to the crumbling ruins of a nearby temple. As we turn the page, an unmasked Batman is revealed, his face covered in welts and bruises. He is being attended by the attractive companion of Dr. Dark, who expresses relief when Bruce wakes. He panics for a moment as he realizes his mask is missing, but she reassures him that he only removed it to treat his wounds, though his face does seem familiar, as though she's seen him in a photograph. But he's so bruised it's hard to be sure. As Batman redons his familiar cowl, the woman reveals they are imprisoned in the cells beneath a Buddhist monastery. Batman asks if she is Dark's prisoner as well. In a way, my father and the doctor have had a falling out over some sort of business. I am Talia, daughter of he who is called Ra's al Ghul. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first appearance of Talia al Ghul, Bruce's future lover, betrayer, nemesis, and soulmate. Here, however, she is less of a badass warrior and political schemer, but does fill the damsel in distress role well. Their introductions are cut short as Dark unlocks the door and smarmily comments that, though it would be simple to render Batman his slave through drugs, a courageous adversary like him deserves the chance to die in battle. He cements his Bond era villainy by describing the Mortal Kombat as droll amusement and leering creepily at the reader. Ew. Talia is lashed to a stake in the middle of the arena, and a fierce caged bull is released. Dark presents Batman's option. Attempt escape while he has the chance, or stay and protect the lady. As the gate rises, Batman works to keep a calm head. Sure, the bull is large, but it's dumb and can be beaten. In a pulpy but highly entertaining stroke of brilliance, Batman whips off his cape and uses it as though he were a matador, thinking to himself, It's not the best chance I've ever had, but there is still hope. Dark's given me exactly what I need to escape. Batman uses his cape to confuse the bull, then socks it right in the face to disorient it. 
He then taunts the groggy bull, leading it toward the guarded exit. At the last second, Batman turns and vaults over the bull, letting it crash into the shoddy blockade, scattering shards of wood and ambiguously eastern henchmen in all directions. However, instead of making a run for it, Batman returns to Talia and pulls her stake out of the ground. There's no time to untie her, so he tells her to keep close as he runs toward the other side of the arena, towards the balcony from which Dark opens fire. Using the pole to vault up to his level, Batman kicks the villain in the face, knocking the man unconscious and the gun out of panel. As she's pulled up by her still-bound hands, Talia warns Batman that the assassins have regrouped and are advancing. However, the pair have a trump card, Dr. Dark himself. Batman instructs Talia to warn the goons that if they don't back off, their leader will meet an unpleasant fate. Batman carries Dark while Talia retrieves the gun, and the three escape out the window and run to intercept the returning Sume Express. Dr. Dark returns to consciousness after a few minutes and is interrogated by Batman. He explains his criminal activities from previous issues that I am basically unaware of, and firmly maintains that he is a gentleman, and all his actions were mere business. Once they arrive at the track, Dark confirms that Batman will deliver him to the police once they return to civilization. As he adjusts his cravat, Dark steals a trick from the Joker and sprays Batman with blinding gas from his tie pin. He pulls a knife and begins menacing the Dark Knight detective towards the train tracks as the Sume Express hurdles forward. Talia threatens Dark to step away or she'll shoot, but he calls her bluff. Unfortunately for him, Talia is desperate indeed and her threat was not empty. He staggers back from the shot, falling onto the trains, and is crushed by the oncoming train. Thus, Dr. Dark's career ends with a final shrill scream, and as Talia sinks trembling into the Batman's embrace, a new episode begins. Actually, it's all one episode. Tune in after the break for the second part of this two-part coverage of the first appearance of The Demon's Daughter. Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm. Lolcats. Lolcats. Porn. Lolcats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well... Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast, or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.com. 
www.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? The story continues in Batman 232, cover dated June 1971. Once again, written by Danny O'Neill, with art by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano. Color once again by Tom Ziuka. Instead of a copy-covered splash page, the story begins with a quiet, black-on-blue silhouette of Robin shinnying up a drainpipe to his room at Hudson University. He begins to enter through the window, but pauses for a moment, whispering, Who is that? Who's there? His response is a pair of muzzle flashes, and the rest of the page is filled with a single panel of Robin screaming as he is shot twice and crumples to the floor. We cut to the lavish Gotham City penthouse of millionaire Bruce Wayne as the worried mentor hangs up the phone. No one has seen Dick Grayson in the past couple of days, and that can only mean trouble. Alfred enters and presents the master with a letter that has just arrived. Both are horrified when Bruce opens the envelope revealing a photograph of the kidnapped Robin and a note that taunts them to save him if you can. The narration caption informs us that the dread Batman is no stranger to peril, for he has pitted his strength, courage, and intelligence against the deadliest of foes, the most ingenious of criminals. Yet no quest has ever taken him closer to death than his search for the daughter of the demon. Bruce quickly dons his costume as he tells Alfred to cancel all of his appointments. If Batman is to find his ward in time, he doesn't have time to be Bruce Wayne. Alfred asks what his first step will be, and Batman replies as he swings out the window that he has to run a full analysis of the note and photo, and for that, he needs the Batcave. As he returns to his ancestral home, now dark and silent as a tomb, Batman feels a shiver of unease. Perhaps he and Dick never should have left in the first place, but times change, and people must change with them. Like with Superman in the last episode, the Batman books now had a slightly different status quo than one might be used to from the Adam West series. Bruce and Alfred had moved into the city, and Dick went to college. This de-emphasizing of Robin in the stories allowed the tone to skew slightly older, with more focus on detective work and action rather than babysitting. Nothing against Dick Grayson, I love him as Nightwing, but I think that the story really benefits from his decreased presence, not to mention his growing maturity. In an attempt to distance the books from the show, the editors and writers at DC de-emphasized the campier aspects of the Batman mythos, like the fireman pole behind the grandfather clock, or the situationally convenient gadgets. Bat shark repellent, anyone? However, they still make an appearance as Bruce points out that he builds everything in the cave to last. That definitely seems to hold true, since next year marks Batman's big 7-5. Once inside the cave, something happens to Batman that modern readers would find shocking, perhaps even blasphemous. Lost in thought, Batman is surprised by an icy voice from off-panel that greets him. Welcome home, Bruce Wayne. Or shall I address you as the Batman? Batman, completely caught off guard, whips around and asks, Who are you? How did you get in here? Stepping out of the shadow, the mysterious man reveals himself as a tall, vaguely eastern-looking man in a green suit and long green and gold cloak. He is accompanied by a looming bodyguard and replies, To answer your question, I am presently known as Ra's al Ghul. You shall be seeing much of me. Wow. Okay, as far as villain entrances go, that is just phenomenal. 
There's so much confidence in his stance with one fist on his hip that it just gives me shivers. So little has changed in his design, character, or motivation in four decades, and he just feels timeless. Coupled with the fact that this man is able to get the drop on Batman, knowing both the location of his lair and his secret identity, you completely believe that this man is Batman's intellectual equal. I know there's a lot of controversy over how to say the name, but since I'm a fan first and foremost of the JLA and Batman animated shows, and don't speak Arabic, I will be referring to him as Raz al Ghul. So if you have any issues with my pronunciation, too bad. Roz continues. To answer your second query, it was a simple matter of deduction and research. I reasoned that the Batman had to be wealthy, and that he needed certain kinds of equipment. Therefore, I merely had my organization investigate. Batman cuts him off, removing his cowl. And you found that Bruce Wayne alone bought what the Batman had to have, right? Okay, that's a whole out plug. I'm surprised someone didn't think of it years ago. Now I have a third question. The big one. What do you want? Roz hands Batman a picture of Talia and a taunting note, almost identical to the one Batman himself received. Recognizing Talia instantly, Batman admits that the two of them have a mutual problem. Roz states that Talia spoke highly of his skills as a detective, and he trusts her judgment without reservation. If anyone can find his daughter, it is the Batman. After an hour of intense investigation, Batman finds a clue on the note. Unmistakable traces of an herb used in ceremonies by a group of Far Eastern killers named the Brotherhood of the Demon, currently located in Calcutta. As Batman and Roz walk towards the stairs leading up to the roof and Roz's waiting airplane, the large bodyguard shoves Batman aside. Infidel, my Lord Al Ghul leaves the chamber first. Roz apologizes for Ubu's behavior. He is completely loyal only to Roz and can be a bit overzealous. On board Al Ghul's private jet, Batman broods stoically, as he is wont to do. Roz points out that, though lives very precious to the two of them hang in the balance, Batman doesn't seem worried. Has he no feelings? In a great response, Batman replies, Plenty of them, but it won't do any good for me to allow my emotions to gain control. Not while there's a job ahead. For years I've trained myself to concentrate on the thing at hand. Later I'll cry. If I must. We then have a close-up on Batman's face as his internal monologue wanders, remembering the night his parents were murdered. Plenty of tears were shed then. The flashback continues, giving a succinct summary of Batman's backstory. The dedication to both martial arts and criminology, as well as Batman's superstitious influences that caused him to take up the mantle of the Bat. Finally, he recounts the death of the Flying Graysons and the way that he adopted Dick so that he would not have to go through life alone. Their shared pain forged a bond between them, a desire to see justice meted out to those who do not hold life sacred. Though the Batman confronts man's inhumanity daily, today it has struck closer to home. Soon in Calcutta, an old monk in a cloak walks the streets with the aid of a staff, begging for alms. Two men with clubs accost him, but the priest clocks one of them with his staff, pulling off the robes to reveal he is Batman. One of the men shrieks, Beneath the robes of the holy man, a devil from hell, a Batman! Batman interrogates the thugs with his fists, questioning them about the location of the Brotherhood until one finally breaks down. Batman leaves the two nursing their wounds in the street and calmly walks away to meet with Roz and Ubu and begin their search for the Alley of Widows. The scene itself is pretty good as far as action sequences go, but the dialogue is clunky, 
not helped by the not-quite-broken English and archaic phrases that the thugs are using. I get that you've got to have a villain. I'm not blaming the comic too much for perpetuating stereotypes about the Middle East. But there's definitely some Orientalism going on, both with the way the thugs are characterized and with the way that the city is described. A city of miseries and tears, full of backstabbers and thieves. I get that it's trying to paint a background of the city as a wretched hive of scum and villainy. But when it falls into stereotypes and tropes about Middle Eastern people, it's a touch uncomfortable. As the three set off to continue their quest, Ubu again pushes Batman aside so that Roz can go first. Roz points the way towards a seemingly abandoned building, at which point Batman again takes the lead. As Batman enters the dark building, something watches from the shadows. Suddenly, a leopard leaps at the Dark Knight, who instinctively smashes his elbow into the leopard's open jaws. Batman pulls some impressive judo moves, rolling with the leopard to avoid the raking claws until he has the necessary leverage to snap the animal's neck. Roz appears impressed, but Batman has already moved on to the next clue. The animal was trained as a guard, and the only thing in the room is a desk with a chart of the Himalayan mountains on it. Batman notices a faint scratch along the map, tracing a route through the mountains. Roz immediately offers his services to finance the mountain expedition and returns to the plain, Batman making an elaborate show of letting Roz and Ubu go first. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is merely the halfway mark of this issue. One more brief break, and when we come back, we will finish this epic tale of adventure featuring the Dark Knight Detective. The Flashbulb Podcast. Three to ten minutes of fiction brought to you thrice weekly. From cosmic horrors to fisticuffs, fast cars and smart mouths, we've got a chill for every spine. Find it all at flashpulp.com or search for it on iTunes. <laughs> we return to the story on a full panel splash page of Batman leading the mountain expedition, and oh my god, is it beautiful. Batman kneels in the snow, pointing out a trail of footprints to Roz and Ubu as the mountain looms above them, dark against the pale blue winter sky. Neil Adams' art is absolutely gorgeous here, especially on Batman. Ubu and Roz are both wearing typical mountaineering garb, but Bats is clearly wearing his costume underneath the winter coats. Now, this could have looked silly, but the combination of Batman's iconic cowl with winter goggles, gloves, and a coat it just looks cool. This is personal taste here, but as a self-proclaimed steampunk, I think everything looks cooler with goggles, Batman included. It's a small thing, but moments like acknowledging that a costume is just an item of clothing and isn't magically 100% fireproof or airtight or cold-resistant underlines the realistic tone of the story and makes it feel a lot more like an Indiana Jones adventure than a superhero fantasy story. As the three explorers scale the cliff, Roz pauses on a ledge. Batman asks if he needs to rest, but Roz assures him that his stamina is sufficient. Instead, he waxes lyrical about the desolate beauty of the winter wasteland. He is cursed with a love for emptiness and desolation. Batman is less interested in Roz's life story than the hand and footholds that he found cut in the sheer side of the cliff. Batman takes point as, inch by inch, the three make their way upwards. But they are not alone on the mountain, as we get a single panel of a sniper taking aim. Without warning, a shot rings out, and Roz al Ghul cries out, sliding down the rope as his grip loosens. Batman flinches as the shots ricochet around him, just barely missing. 
He wedges himself into a protected crevice as Ubu slides down to protect Roz, leaving Batman free to try an insane idea that might be his only chance of escape. He slips out of the parka so that he won't be constricted in hand-to-hand fighting, then tosses it out as a distraction to draw the sniper's fire. Grabbing hold of the rope, Batman kicks off and swings around the edge of the cliff face and out of the sniper's line of fire before he has time to react. The sniper chases Batman around the edge of the cliff, but he appears to have vanished. Suddenly, a gloved hand reaches up from the snowdrift at the man's feet and pulls him down so that Batman can deliver a solid punch to the face. Batman leaves the unconscious shooter in the snow and continues up the mountain, following the smoke from cook fires in the distance, revealing the headquarters, the Brotherhood of the Demon. Batman deduces that there are probably a dozen guns trained on him, but he knows that they won't shoot him now. They're waiting to see his reaction. To Airwolf! Yes, Batman looks up as he hears the whoosh of helicopter blades, but even this does not seem to phase our hero. It figures there would be a chopper in the area. Really? And I can guess who the passengers are. Really? An editor's note at the bottom of the panel notes how nonchalant Batman is acting, almost as if he has cracked this whole case wide open. Finally, Batman reaches the mouth of the cave, guarded by two men with machine guns. He's a little disappointed. He's come halfway around the world to find the Brotherhood of the Demon, and in the end, they're just creeps trying to prove their manhood by waving around guns. They tell him to halt, but Batman shoves them aside, saying they all know the guards wouldn't dare to shoot him now. Boldly, Batman strides into the inner sanctum, where Robin is tied up and guarded by more men with machine guns. Batman sits right next to Robin, despite the guards' protests, and the two exchange pleasantries. How have they been treating you, kid? Not bad. Chow's lousy. Nice atmosphere, though. You have any hassles getting here? Batman replies as he slips Robin a switchblade to cut himself free with. None to complain of, but do me a favor. Next hoods that snare you, ask them to stay in the United States. I hate long trips. At this point, the Supreme Brother, a huge man wearing a horned ram's mask and long cloak, enters. The guards order Batman to kneel, but he stands instead, brushing aside the brothers with contempt. In the last three days, he's fought cutthroats and a trained leopard, climbed a mountain, dodged bullets, and he doesn't have any patience left for their bullshit. He berates the Brotherhood. You think a man with my training couldn't see what's been happening? From the very beginning, I saw the whole deal was a charade. And in a Holmesian, or perhaps monkey monologue, Batman lays out all the clues for the readers. Ra's al Ghul and his ox of a servant showing up right after Robin disappeared? That was a joke. Too quick. Too big a coincidence. Al Ghul's story of his daughter's identical disappearance wouldn't have fooled a moron. Then in Calcutta, Ubu always made a big routine of letting his boss go ahead of me. Except when there was danger. Conclusion? Ubu knew the leopard was waiting. The map was the clincher. I told a little white lie, because there was no fingernail scratch on the chart. Yet Ubu and Al Ghul took me to this mountain? This? Of the 13 Himalayas? Both Batman and I feel tired of talking after all that, but the extended monologue has given Robin the distraction he needed to cut himself loose. He asks his mentor, Shall we begin? And the fight is on. In the three page-wide panels, the artists showcase the martial arts talents of our heroes as they duck and punch, grapple and trip their opponents until only the giant supreme brother remains. Batman rips off the mask. No sense hiding behind that mask any longer. It's a poor disguise for one as big and ugly as you, Ubu. The two square off as Batman notes, You've been taking my measure. You want to prove yourself against the Batman. Ubu replies, 
filthy American. I shall dance on your corpse! As he puts all his considerable strength behind one massive blow. But the Dark Knight is quicker than him and easily dodges away. Not likely. Oh sure, you're large. Powerful. But clumsy and soft. Batman darts in and drops Ubu with a punch to the stomach, followed by a massive uppercut. You've been getting by by scaring people. Well, the Batman doesn't scare. The final blow knocks Ubu flying through a curtain leading into an adjacent cavern. As Batman enters, he quips, Well, look who's joined the merriment, Robin. The Honorable Ra's al Ghul and his girl child. Ra's appears strangely pleased that Batman has unraveled his scheme. But Batman is far from amused. I know you faked being shot. I figured out everything. Except why? You've staged a complicated quest, and the dangers along the way were real. You would have let me be killed if I hadn't saved myself. You went through a lot of trouble for a game. Roz calmly replies, Not a game, detective. Your admirable mind has reasoned all save the obvious. That my darling Talia loves you. My organization is vast. I consider retiring from my activities, and I had to satisfy myself that you are a worthy successor. A worthy son-in-law. And our story ends with a close-up of Batman's stunned face as Talia caresses his cheek and gives him a kiss. And that, at last, is the end of our recap. We'll be back right after one last promo for the wrap-up and my final thoughts on the introduction of Talia and Raz al Ghul. 1937. To keep the increasingly threatening Third Reich from achieving a supernatural doomsday weapon, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt secretly turns to soldier of fortune, adventurer, and World War I hero, Ace Kilroy. Ace Kilroy is a serialized webcomic that launched on Halloween night 2011. The co-creation of writer Rob Kelly and artist Dan O'Connor. It was nominated for a 2012 Eagle Award for Favorite Webcomic, and Kelly won a 2012 Philadelphia Geek Award for Comic Book Writer of the Year. Ace Kilroy features adventure, horror, mystery, political intrigue, and romance. Join the fight against evil. Visit acekilroy.com. Even though it was a difficult production, to say the least, I'm glad I decided to cover both of these issues in one episode because the contrast between them is stark as day and night. Now, I want to be fair to Detective Comics 411. It's a good story. Very enjoyable, great action, great pacing, serviceable art, very fun. However, reading Batman 232 right afterwards, it boggles my mind a little that these issues were released about a month apart. The Detective Comics story is fun, no doubt about that, but it's just not as complex. In Batman, we have the introduction of a brand new villain, high stakes for both our heroes, a real sense of danger, not to mention a very well-crafted mystery with just enough clues in the writing and art for the reader to follow along, but probably not guess the ending. Both stories are pulpy to some degree, and are versions of pretty classic adventure hooks. But really, for me, it all comes down to the execution. Detective Comics 411 started and stopped as an adventure in the jungle with a square-jawed hero fighting a foppish villain to save a pretty lady. While it does that story well, it doesn't bring much new to the table, and very few of Batman's actions are driven by his character. With Batman 232, though it follows some standard action-adventure tropes, it would be almost impossible to switch out Batman with any other character. It does a much better job at displaying the complex nature of the Dark Knight as a brilliant thinker as well as an accomplished fighter. 
To me, Detective Comics feels kind of like a popcorn flick. It's Legend of the Seeker, and the Batman issue is Game of Thrones. Even though they're in the same genre, one just has way more substance. Though I admit, a lot of this feeling comes from the art. I raved for a moment or two about Neil Adams' art, and I have to underline it. It is gorgeous. Absolutely stunning. The amount of shading and detail that goes into every panel and background is phenomenal. Compare this to Detective Comics, where the art was serviceable and clear, but also kind of simplistic. The same inker and colorist worked on both issues, but the pencils they're working with make all the difference in the world. Whereas the Detective Comics issue made use of lots of bright block coloring, Batman 232 is full of muted, contrasting colors that expand the palette and make the whole thing just feel moodier, more intense. As Charlie Niemeyer has pointed out before, some people contest whether or not the Bronze Age really exists, or if it's all just part of the Silver Age. I would ask anyone who thinks that to compare the writing and art style of these two books side by side and make a case that they're from the same age, even though they came out the same year. In my mind, neither the Bronze or Silver Age has a fixed beginning or end date, but Bronze Age books have a different feel. There's greater emphasis on realistic art and a willingness to experiment with angles and panel layouts, more focus on character struggles while still managing to retain that giddy joy of reading a comic. And here we have Denny O'Neill to thank for that again. So far, both of the books I've reviewed were by Denny O'Neill, so it might be unfair to make assumptions about the entire Bronze Age based on his writing style, but I'm going to do that anyway. O'Neill and other Bronze Age writers, I'm sure, place more emphasis on the personal drama, and that helps give these books more... gravitas. Even if the setup and payoff are still pulpy, the writing feels more like a novel than a comic, without the Silver Age-style re-emphasis and over-explanation. O'Neill has a great understanding of setup and payoff, and seems to really delve into the characters and their relations and motivations. We're invested in the adventure because Batman is invested, and he is invested because he cares about Robin. His concern really comes through in his reunion with Dick, where they both make jokes to diffuse the tension, but the reader can still feel their sense of relief that they've both made it through all right. Now, I mentioned before how difficult it would be to swap out Batman with any other character in this story. Well, that's not entirely true. Everyone has their own Batman, and Denny O'Neill's Batman is definitely Sherlock Holmes with Kung Fu. In this one issue, he firmly establishes Batman as Holmes, showcases Robin's ability as a Watson-like partner, not just a kid's sidekick, and introduces our Moriarty and Irene Adler, Ra's al Ghul and Talia. Personally... I love it. They say that talent imitates, genius steals, and Danny O'Neill is definitely a talented genius. The Holmes mythos is broad and timeless, and I don't mind it cropping up here any more than I minded it in John Pertwee's Third Doctor. The characters are still fleshed out beyond their Sir Doyle analogs, and the writing and character beats, especially between Batman and Robin, are a delight to read. I poked fun at it a bit, but I did like Batman's disguises, and not just because they were a shout-out to Mr. Holmes. I was able to suspend my disbelief for those, because even though it was unrealistic, the way they were used was just such fun. I was grinning all the way through both of these issues. So final thoughts? Detective Comics 411 was a fun story, but definitely ended up being the appetizer for a heartier main dish. The more I delved into Batman 232, 
the more I fell in love with it. Denny O'Neill's writing, Neil Adams' pencils, Dick Giordano's inks. I've read a few more Bronze Age books since I read this the first time, and this still feels like a highlight. I won't judge all upcoming stories by this standard, but I am excited to see what book, if any, in this project can really top it for me. Thanks for sticking with me through all this. I'm sorry about the delay in episodes, and I promise I won't take another three-month break in between episodes for a long time. Expect the next one out in about a month or so. So until then, take care, and have a very happy holidays. This has been a Relatively Geeky production. Tune in to the Relatively Geeky podcast feed for this and other shows at www.relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search for Relatively Geeky or Uncovering the Bronze Age in iTunes. If you have feedback for this show or any other show on our feed, email us at relativelygeeky at gmail.com or leave a rating and review on iTunes.